On today's program, taking care of the people you love at home. I could see her not taking care of things the way she used to. You know, her heart was in it, but she just couldn't finish the project. Taking care of a loved one at home is a way of life. The one lesson that I learned with Julia, once, once I learned it, everything became much easier, is this is her life. It's not something that happened to me. This is her body and her life, and I'm just here to try to make it as comfortable and pleasant as I can and, and make sure that she's happy and gets everything she needs. On today's program, strategies for making it work and ways to honor boundaries and reap the benefits of being present and accompanying someone you love in a time of need. Family Caregiving on today's Hear Me Now podcast, which comes to you from the Providence Institute for Human Caring. Hi everybody, it's Sean Collins. I'm glad you're with us. One of the facts of the American healthcare system at the moment is that if you have an acute healthcare problem, you may be hospitalized for a while. But as soon as possible, as soon as it can be argued that it's safe, you'll be discharged either to a rehab hospital or a rehab program in a skilled care facility or to home where the responsibility for your care will likely rest with an untrained caregiver, a spouse, maybe an elderly spouse, or an adult child, or a friend who stays with you. That's our focus today, those family caregivers and the burdens they face and the benefits they experience. And I do want to stress that it's not entirely burdensome. There is great satisfaction in being able to help someone you love. There's a benefit to showing up, being present, accompanying someone as they recover or as they near the end of their life. Being there matters. Doing the work of caring matters. And all across the country, people are making sacrifices to help take care of loved ones, sometimes for a while, sometimes for a lifetime. I'm delighted to be able to welcome three Providence professionals to offer some insight into the situations faced by family caregivers in your community. Dr. Maureen Nash is a geriatric psychiatrist and the medical director of Providence Elder Place in Portland, Oregon. Dr. Nash brings to our discussion today a really keen understanding of dementia and the ways families of people with dementia can participate in their care. Maureen, it's good to have you back on the program. Welcome. Thank you. Dr. Robin Henderson is a doctor of psychology and the chief executive of behavioral health for Providence, Oregon. She and I and producer Scott Acord had a conversation a few weeks ago, and Robin's own role as a family caregiver came up, and that helped us shape the scope of today's program. Robin, welcome back. Great to see you again. It's good to see you too, Sean. I'm looking forward to the conversation. And finally, I'm really happy to introduce Dr. Nick Cockler. He's the Vice President for System Ethics Services in the Theology and Ethics Department at Providence St. Joseph Health, where, among other things, he assists clinicians and caregivers and hospital leadership in ethical decision-making. 
Nick, it's great to meet you. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Looking forward to it. So, um, have the three of you heard the one about the time an ethicist, a psychiatrist, and a clinical psychologist walked into a podcast? <laughs> Just yep. checking. I do love the variety of expertise that's at this table virtually today, and I'm I'm really grateful for the three of you being here. So, to kick things off, I, I really want to stress that conceit that I mentioned a moment ago, that caregiving is not always just a burden. There's a benefit to showing up and, and being present and being the one who's giving care. There's real psychosocial and spiritual humanitarian benefit to that. But there are burdens to the task of caregiving. And I hope that we can talk about both sides of that equation today. One thing that strikes me is that the system as it's set up now, when someone's discharged to home, they're discharged into the care likely of untrained, well-meaning, well-intentioned people who are eager to help and may have absolutely no idea what they're getting into and what the totality of the care is going to be. Um, I wonder whether there's ever a chance to go back and reassess the level of care that someone's getting after they're discharged to home. Well, I can just uh, throw out some some thoughts. This is Maureen uh, Nash. What I have found is that there is some level of assessment, especially for older adults, of the level of functioning prior to discharge um, in, in a normal world. I, I think like many other things um, in the COVID pandemic, I think there's probably less of that because there's less access to um, occupational therapists who specialize in that. But I, I do think hospitals and acute care attempts to look at that. Um, and then home health agencies, once a person is out, look at that to a certain degree. Maureen, I just want to make sure that I understand what you're saying. The assessment is of the identified patient or of the caregiver? Of the identified patient. And then when you're in home health, the assessment is of the person in their environment, which could include uh, informal, what we call informal caregivers, uh, you know, which is like the mainstay of many, many um, people's lives. So I think if you have um, a good primary care provider or a primary care medical home, you have access to lots of, um, at least to some uh, resources for assessment and support in a home environment. I think people who do not have a primary care provider um, are really the ones who are very much at risk um, and I think there is a financial, you know, I think people who are more well off have more access in general is what I have seen. So this is Robin and I, I want to agree with you. I definitely think uh, what you're bringing up about people who have access to means and means plays out in a few different ways. If you're fortunate enough to have the means to be able to hire private caregiving, um, really, really great pertinent example in my world, uh, my in-laws, 
uh, moved here to West Lim where I live and they live about a mile away from us. And they moved here on Christmas day of uh, 2020. My husband went and got them. It's a long story. I won't detail you all with that. But when they got here, what we realized is that they were both in varying stages of dementia. And it was very, very fortuitous that we got them when we got them before anything really super bad had happened. But because they had means, we were able to bring help into the home during this year while we've assessed things, brought in various professionals. Everything's harder during COVID. And tomorrow, actually, we're transitioning them to a full-time memory care facility because it's just the safest environment. Again, this all happens because they have means. Now, I have another situation where my elderly sister is caring for her husband who is dying of COPD. And they do not have means. They have straight Medicare, a little bit of managed in there. They make a little bit too much to qualify for Medicaid assistance. So they do not have means. And when people talk about bringing home health in, well, you have a $3,000 a month copay for that. And again, home health will only come in if we're looking at how we can restore someone's ability. But when you're in that position where you're really sick and you require care, but you're not sick enough for hospice level care, when that kicks in, then you're in a gray zone where you have an elderly person caring for a frail elderly person and not enough resources to get help, not enough resources to get assistance from, from Medicaid, and you're really kind of stuck in this very dangerous place. And I don't think she's the only person. I think there are a lot of people that we discharge every day to a non-ideal environment. And I'm really interested in where Nick sees this in terms of the ethics of knowingly when we know we're discharging someone to not an ideal discharge. These are tough decisions and we call Nick and his team when those tough decisions come. Well, thanks Robin. Um, yes, uh, we are uh, often called into situations when the optimal discharge or the ideal plan of care or uh, disposition is not available for a variety of reasons. And we help uh, walk alongside our, our care teams and families and patients in discerning, well, if we can't do the optimal, if we can't do the ideal, what can we do? Uh, and what can we do to make the discharge as safe as possible? And, and that's often, uh, that often leaves us with uh, an unsettled feeling of having to accept certain degrees of risks. Uh, with the with the disposition plan as it is evolving and, and emerging, so that that can really put a real challenge on people who are trying to do the right thing are motivated by noble ends, uh, the values that they hold, and and wanting to care for their loved one, and yet not being able to do the the best, um, it, the best that would be recommended or otherwise available to those who have means. One of the things I've witnessed over the years is. Um, I don't know, an attempt at a trial. Uh, like, well, let's see whether this works. And once that ball starts rolling, it's hard to stop and say, actually, this isn't working. I applaud you, Robin, in your family's ability to say, you know, it's time to make a change. It's, it's really a thorny issue to have to bring it up. I mean, especially the idea of independence and losing one's independence is one that we feel so strongly in our culture. We, we want to stay in our homes. We want to live with the people that we live with. We don't necessarily want to go anyplace else. 
And yet, that may be what's best for us. How do you have those conversations, especially when it's a situation perhaps with an elderly spouse caring for another elderly spouse? Uh, This is Maureen, and I'm just going to chime in here. I, I think this is exactly where it's very important to have discussions with people about what is important to them and what is most important to them. And different people in, in the same family may answer that in a very different way. Um, spouses may answer quite differently from each other. So, because some people do value independence more than anything and really are willing to tolerate things that others of us might consider unsafe or very undesirable while others are really unwilling to tolerate um, or willing to take the advice of professionals when we, when we tell them we think that they need more help and that they need a different level of care. They need to move into a facility. And so um, I think that's where goals of care discussions, having really what matters to you, you know, there's the 4M movement in, in geriatrics and really figuring out and meaning, having meaningful discussions about what matters to a person is really vital. And I could give you an example. My father, um, living in a nursing home terrified him. It was like the worst thing ever. And so when he had a syncope episode, I called my mother and my sister and I said, they're gonna talk to you about a pacemaker in the hospital. He doesn't wanna live to be disabled. Just say no, (laughs) which they did. And a couple years later, you know, when he was in the hospital, uh, you know, it came to a tube feeding discussion. And I said to my sister, who was, I said, you know, you have to look at what dad has said is important to him. On the other hand, there was my great aunt and she had dementia and she was living uh, with my grandmother who was taking care of her and very stressful. And my, I said to my grandma, you know, Aunt Henretta really misses being around men. I think moving to a nursing home or some place where she'd have more people to socialize with would be really good for her. And my grandmother was, it was very hard for my grandmother to let go of that. But that was based on what my aunt clearly wanted. And so she moved to a nursing home and she lived there for four months before she had an event and her life ended. But she had a great four months. And those are like diametrically different. You know, Maureen, I'm so glad that you brought up the issue of what matters to you. Um, my in-laws, my mother-in-law is a very independent person. And like I say, both of them have dementia at two different rates. So you have my father-in-law, Jim, who can literally walk around the island in the kitchen and reintroduce himself to you. Uh, and that's And that's the extent of his memory. And he is a very happy person very cute, very adorable, very, very gracious. And you will have the same conversation five times within 10 minutes easily. 
my my mother-in-law jane on the other hand um her her short-term memory is a little better than that uh she's got about a good day and so what happened today and what happens tomorrow you know we're reintroducing a day every day so we've got two different levels of dementia going on at the same time simultaneously and we had a precipitating event where my my father-in-law went out for a walk at four in the morning fortunately he was wearing clothing this was good uh, but four in the morning and he took a tumble and he was very, very lucky uh, that we live in a neighborhood where um, the police have him registered. Everybody knows who he is and uh, he was not severely injured. He did break his nose, but we had to have that conversation about this is no longer safe and we need to look at full time memory care. And we went to Jane and said, what is important to you? And she said, the most important thing to me is staying with Jim. So if Jim needs to go to memory care, I'm going with him. Yes, okay, this won the day. But the next day, the most important thing was the coffee maker. <laughs> and, and as Maureen knows, these are conversations and negotiations in memory care, and, and it's been an ongoing thing. And it is a new conversation every day because every day she has to relive this conversation about you're gonna to go to memory care and every day there's a different issue and a reason why and every day it's a new conversation. Here's what we know. We know that next week at this time, she'll be there and she'll be happy with it and that will be it. We just have to get ourselves through every day up until then. But her meaning, she was very clear. She wanted to stay with her Jimmy. I think this is such an important idea that the question that it raises for me is is the glide path that many people with dementia have. You know, um, the conversation that you have a year ago will be different from the conversation that you had six months ago from the one that you have today from the one that you have two weeks from now. Um, how do you assess what someone says is important to them if their capacity might be at issue? That's why it's so important to have these conversations with each other before somebody has dementia or before there's a diagnosis because most people have dementia for five, even 10 years prior to a diagnosis. So, but it's so important. Um, and apparently I am an unusual person. I actually had talked to my father and listened to him. Uh, and so I actually knew his, his feelings from when he was in his fifties what his feelings were about long-term care and nursing facilities. And I talked to my grandmother and I talked to my great aunt. But um, what I was surprised to find when they, when it got to a point where decisions need to be made, I don't know if there was a single other member of my family who'd actually talked to them about those things. And that's when it occurred to me, oh, well, there are people who don't talk about these things and it is so important it's so important that you document for yourself and that you talk to your loved ones and that you encourage others to talk to their loved ones before they have dementia because otherwise it gets into Eric, um, Eric it gets into Nick's uh, area of expertise and and that involves sort of what to do when you don't know or when a person doesn't have the capacity to make a decision in their own best interest anymore. The overarching 
idea is to make the decision making and the planning as patient-centered as possible. And, you know, certainly inviting a conversation and, and having that conversation and understanding the values as expressed from the person, him or herself, is, is essential. It's, it's, it's best practice. However, often, as has been mentioned, there are no conversations or very little conversations. And so then you're left with, well, how do we discern what this person would want in this situation. And it's, it's a mixture of uh, pulling from all sorts of different data sources. Uh, over, the, over the span of their life, what did they find joy in? What did they uh, um, value? Um, looking at their, you know, their biography and trying to infer what they would find important now. It's an imperfect science. Um, but it's, it's calling attention to the importance of uh, doing the best we can to get a, a portrait of the person, not just merely the diagnosis of dementia. So it's, it's trying to get an enrich an understanding of who they are, what they enjoy, what they like, uh, and molding the plan of care uh, and the environment of care uh, that best fits that. I want to introduce you to Linda. Her elderly parents had both been quite active throughout their lives. Her father was a woodworker and a home builder. Her mother gardened and sewed and loved being in the kitchen where she she cooked and she baked. Um, her father developed heart disease and began to use a wheelchair in the months that led up to his death. And her mother became unsteady on her feet and was a fall risk. And she began to show signs of dementia. Linda spoke with our producer, Scott Acord. I really started noticing after she took that bad fall, and actually the year he was in the wheelchair for Thanksgiving, she decided she was going to make Thanksgiving, and this was probably eight years ago. And he called me. He, I was making some stuff at my house, and I was going to bring it over. He goes, she can't do this. And she kept insisting she could. So I came over and got the turkey put in and basically finished, you know, Thanksgiving dinner here. And she's just like, I got to go sit down. And she had stuff everywhere, you know. And, you know, there's little signs that you see. I could see her not taking care of things the way she used to and forgetting to pick things up. And, you know, her heart was in it, but she just couldn't finish the project. So I have like tons of vanilla pudding in the cabinet because <laughs> she'd have me go to the store and buy this and buy that. And uh, then she'd never, you know, make it, of course. And fortunately, the whole time I worked, when he was in a chair, my best friend, Mary Beth, would come over and help take care of them several days a week. So she would do the shopping for them you know, get meals prepared for them because I don't know how I would have done it and worked full time. Right, because you're, you're an only child. I mean, there's yeah, no... Yeah, it's just me. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes my mom asks me where the other Linda is. <laughs> I'm like, I'd like to know. <laughs> I could use the help. <laughs> you know, it takes several people. I feel so bad for the people who just, they're an only child or the only person because you can never get away, you know. And even now, Mary Beth comes over, you know, a couple days a week so I can just get out of the house. And she's awesome with mom. 
And my husband, he retired. I was still working. So he would take dad to the doctor and we'd take them to therapy, trying to get them more mobile. Because, you know, I tell mom, if you, if you don't use it, you're going to lose it. You have to get up and move. You know, even if it's just, you know, 10 or 15 feet, you got to move a little bit every day. So I had lots of really good outside support because I would probably have lost my mind by now <laughs> if I didn't. You can hear more of Linda's story at her website, hearmenowpodcast.org. What do you think about um, what Linda talks about, uh, making sure that there's help for you as a caregiver? It seems really smart to me. You know, it is smart. Uh, and I think about it in, in our own situation. Um, my 92-year-old mother moved in with my husband and I in December of this last year. Uh, and we had to think a lot about what these changes meant. You know, up until... Up until September, I had teenagers, and then all the teenagers left and went to college. So what do you do when you get rid of your teenagers? Well, you go and get a 92-year-old. And, and I'm very, very fortunate. She is um, she's not dementing. <laughs> she is very cognitively intact. Uh, and But she has mobility issues. And so for her, um, leaving her here alone for a period of time, there's a danger. There's a risk in there. She could fall. She would not be able to get up. Um, things like that. So we now have to think about, we went to a, a wedding uh, in Palm Springs and we had to be really conscious about who was going to come and stay here at the house while we went to Palm Springs for the weekend. The idea that we could go away for the weekend has shifted because somebody's got to make sure, you know, Ma's got her coffee and, and she's got her things and she can't reach very high. So you got to make sure that she's got food and such like that. It was a big deal because we moved her out of my sister's home where she had been kind of in, a, in an apartment and had been responsible for her own laundry and all the other things. And I was reflecting on, on listening to Linda's story and she talked about all the things. In the apartment that she was in, she was surrounded by these Tupperware tubs, you know, those big Rubbermaid tubs of papers and pictures and all of the things. And it was completely overwhelming and she was so depressed because she couldn't clean any of it up. She couldn't deal with it. And I looked at her, I'm like, it's okay. We're just gonna take all the tubs, we're gonna put them down in the garage. And then every now and then we'll bring up a tub and you have this one tub and that's it. Of course, one has become three, I'm not gonna lie. But still, three is the limit. And it's, if this tub isn't bringing you joy anymore, let's put it away and let me bring you something that we can sort through and be done with in 20 minutes. Because that's the other important thing. She's very cognizant of the fact that when she's going through these things, it helps her to have somebody with her to just to acknowledge, just to, even when we were going through her clothes, to give her permission that you can throw this away. It's okay. You can give this to goodwill. It's okay. You, you can keep this. It's okay. That type of stuff matters and it's hard. I, I would just comment what I heard in Linda's story that was so important was just, uh, and research bears this out, the social support for the caregivers is very important. So single children who don't have siblings or even worse, single children who don't have a strong support network of their own, those are the people who are most vulnerable and that you get into a similar thing with um, spouses when there are no children or extended family yeah i was just 
uh, affirming the importance of taking care of oneself so that you can continue to take care of others. If, if you don't uh, allow yourself an opportunity to recharge and, and give yourself respite, uh, your ability to, um, to care for others is, diminishes over time. Are there sources of respite care for the unofficial caregiver? Um, how easily accessed are those services? Well, that's a great question. And the answer really depends on where you live. Um, you know, if you happen to live uh, in Multnomah County, you could enroll in our PACE program, our program of all-inclusive care for the elderly, and we could provide many different levels of assistance in your home. Uh, there are PACE programs across the country, but you're only eligible for PACE if you're really frail. As well, uh, I think some states have robust programs, others don't. There are some national resources, but I, I very much feel like it's a quilt across the country and it's variable. And it's very dependent upon how much money you have. Um, we were able to engage uh, a service visiting angels that was a lifesaver. They were there with my in-laws eight hours a day. Uh, we would not have been able to have kept them in the apartment while we figured out what type of memory care to go to if it hadn't been for that resource. Insurance does not pay for it. It is, it is cash out of the barrel. Um, and that, again, makes it very much an issue of those who have and those who don't have. I do think the other place that we see caregivers though, and those kind of volunteer trains of people are in faith communities. And there are many faith communities that have developed um, extensive resources for in-home visiting. And I think that essential fabric is huge. I'm so glad that you bring that up, Robin. The, the family that takes care of someone is not always related by blood maybe a group of friends, it may be a group of veterans who serve together, maybe a group from church or synagogue, or it may be people you work with or who work with your adult children or neighbors of yours. I wanna play a piece of tape for you. It comes from the NPR broadcast archives. I used to work at NPR News and back in 1996, a colleague of ours died. He was remembered on the air the following Saturday morning by Scott Simon, the host of NPR's Weekend Edition. Here's tape from that broadcast more than 25 years ago. This week we lost a colleague and friend here at National Public Radio. Achille Tyson was an assistant producer on All Things Considered. He died of AIDS early Thursday morning. He was 35 years old. During this last year of his life, Achille was surrounded and cared for by a remarkable group of people here, some of them gay, some of them not, who saw to it that he took his many medications and kept doctor's appointments. They shopped and cooked for him when he was too sick to move, cleaned his apartment, and cheered him through days and weeks when frustration and depression would grip his disposition. When the pain of his sickness shot through his limbs, they were there to hold Achille and rub his feet and hands and stay with him through dark and angry nights. Over the past few years, as more Americans have been claimed by AIDS, we have seen more AIDS patients surrounded and sustained by these kinds of families. I say these kinds of families only because they lack a blood relationship. 
In all the important respects, of course, love and regard and selflessness, these groups of people are families. Frank Browning, a former colleague who's become a leading commentator on gay issues and culture, says that because many homosexuals have had to live outside the law, as he calls it, they have devised forms of families, extended, not exclusive, that frame love and commitment within their lives. We know there are Americans who see homosexuality as wrong and homosexuals as miscreants or misguided souls. When we report stories of current controversy over proposals for same-sex marriage, for example, or gay adoption, their views will be included. But we wish some of those people could see, as we have, the depth and the beauty of caring many gays have brought into each other's lives and the strength and sense of purpose with which they have confronted the epidemic of AIDS. This week we mourn the loss of a friend. We remember how Achille used to steam through the halls here with his dancer's grace, head bent down near to deadline, seeming to miss almost by magic swinging doors and spilled spools of tape, waving a reel in his hand and calling out to anxious editors, I've got it, I've got it. But as we grieve, we are also grateful to know those who cared for Achille, to work alongside people who bring so much kindness and so much courage into this world is a blessing. That's NPR Scott Simon remembering a colleague, Achille Tyson, on NPR's Weekend Edition, the morning of May 11th, 1996. I was fortunate to be part of that caregiving group, and it taught me a lesson that, you know, anything difficult that you do in community builds community. And the space at the bedside is sacred, but so is the space in the kitchen and in the laundry room and on the couch and walking the neighborhood on a spring day and driving to doctor's visits with your hand moving from the stick shift to his knee, back to the stick shift, back silently to his knee. All of that is holy. And it's quite remarkable to bring a diverse group of people to that experience of taking care of someone together. And I think it speaks to the, the one of the biggest benefits of being a caregiver is really that sense of satisfaction and the sense of communicating with others, supporting others, being a part of the solution, you know, being a positive force in the world. And that in itself is its own reward. The mission of Providence is that we reveal God's love. And I think there are important words there. We is not I. We share this, uh, this expression of God's love working together. Um, as diverse as we are uh, in our family of organizations, uh, working alongside family members and friends, um, and expressing that love, uh, revealing that love to those we serve and those we serve alongside. And that is, uh, that is in part why we even use the term sacred encounter for any interaction that we have with, with our colleagues, with family members, with patients. It is truly holy. And it's, it's, it's our privilege to be able to create space for love to endure. 
if someone's hospitalized and you suspect that they're going to be eventually discharged to home, I know in my experience that the the conversation about discharge often happens in the last couple days of the hospitalization. And I'm wondering why it doesn't happen earlier in the process so that a family can get started getting a system in place. The road of who's going to help and who's going to be part of the team. Because once the discharge happens, there's a lot to be done in those first 36 or 48 hours of getting someone settled. And you don't really have time to start reaching out right away for help. Um, Would it make sense for professional caregivers to help the unofficial caregivers think through some of the structures of caregiving that are going to have to be in place? Because it seems like we expect every group, every family to sort of reinvent the wheel from the beginning. I'm very curious what my colleagues would say. uh, One hypothesis I have is that depending on uh, the person's medical condition, it may not be known what care needs are going to be at the time of discharge. And so there oftentimes needs to be needs to be time to let the patient um, go through the care that's needed and to see what improvement may or may not occur. Uh, And so you you get uh, more and more clarity as the discharge date draws closer. Um, But if there's more certainty earlier on in the hospital, certainly planning could begin and conversations could begin earlier. but yeah, it's 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 oftentimes we don't know earlier what what is actually going to need be needed, and so we can't craft a discharge plan until more certainty uh, arrives. Yeah, I would definitely second that. I I think um, we have an acute care health system in the United States, and it's really good at acute care, which is what it's designed for. The challenge is the the more we age, the more what we really have is a collection of chronic diseases. And then we have our own particular socioeconomic, psychosocial environment, both personal and in our home. And so there are lots and lots of variables. When I worked on inpatient psychiatry units, we started talking about preparing for discharge on the day people were admitted. But I can assure you families weren't ready to hear about that quite yet. They were very focused on the crisis and getting the crisis stabilized, which of course we were too, and we were working on that. But in, in an acute care med surge realm, it's an entirely different um, more lean healthcare team and people are very focused on the acute issues and it is so variable i can make a prediction as a physician of where i think you're going to be when you're ready for discharge but you could be far better or far worse off than that and it's very hard to hear that as a family and be i mean really hear it well, and it's interesting because in, in inpatient psychiatry, oftentimes the family is exhausted. 
and the family has been enduring and and is tired and needs respite as well along the way. And so when the issue of, okay, and now we're going to return home, in many cases, the family's like, oh, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. And, and there's this like magical thinking that there's going to be some other resource out there. And those have been the situations where we've had to rely on Nick and his team, because when we feel someone is ready to go home and the family does not agree that they're ready for the person to be home, that sets us up in a very contentious space where, yes, could things be better? Could things be more perfect? Absolutely. But guess what? There's five other people who need this specialized bed and you are good enough to go home, even though the family may not be ready for you to be home and the ideal resource may not be there for you. Um, those are really tough conversations. I know of a family whose patriarch was badly injured in an accident and had neurological damage and orthopedic damage and spent, I think, close to a year in acute care facilities and in rehab facilities. And then when it was time to discharge him to home, his wife said, I'm not taking care of him. This isn't my job. I'm his wife. I'm not his nurse. And I think a lot of people in the family might have reacted with shock to her saying that. But you have to sort of admire her having the agency to know what she was comfortable with and making sure in no uncertain terms that people understood that. You have to admire someone who says, you know, I know what I can do and this isn't it. One, one thing that has been percolating on my, on my mind uh, throughout our conversation is the overlay of cultural expectations that might vary from patient to patient, family to family. And, uh, you know, I think in addition to trying to uh, discover and, and hold, hold on to what the patient has expressed what he or she wants, there's also importance in understanding the cultural milieu uh, of that person and what the family understands their role to be. And culturally competent care, culturally reflexive care will att be attuned to, to that dimension and could, be, um, could recognize when that expectation exists and the family is all ready to go or when that expectation does not exist to care for somebody who is debilitated and needs care at home. And how do you adjust then uh, for, for the care that's needed? Some of the data that I've seen shows that um, the numbers of multi-generational families are higher in recent immigrants to the United States. And then in those situations, it may seem much more um, natural or appropriate for a larger family group to be in place where someone can be cared for because it's already a multi-generational structure. Um, there's something about post-World War II suburban America that seems to not lend itself to having, you know, your elderly mother come live with you because she doesn't drive anymore and she's going to be stuck in a house where she doesn't have a car and she can't get out and she can't see people. She can't socialize outside of the home um, and she's going to feel isolated. So I appreciate you bringing up the cultural aspect, Nick. I, I think it's really important. I agree. It's, it's very challenging, but I would also caution 
uh, all of us not to presume just because someone is from a particular cultural background that that's in fact how they would think or what their expectations are. Uh, we do need to put the person at the center of the person in the moment in the in the present uh, and and perhaps that understanding of the uh, cultural practices uh, are hypotheses that can inform our approach, but we should not uh, presume or assume that that's the way it will be. That, that gets us into a lot of problems. Family caregiving is a way of life for many, and among them is Marty. Her daughter, Julia, was born with a neurological condition that has, in Julia's case, caused profound developmental delays. Julia has relied on Marty's care now for more than 30 years, but that time frame was unknown to them at the beginning. Marty spoke with our producer, Scott Acord. The one lesson that I learned with Julia, once, once I learned it, everything became much easier, is this is her life. It's not something that happened to me. This is her body and her life, and I'm just here to try to make it as comfortable and pleasant as I can and, and make sure that she's happy and gets everything she needs. I realized recently I like I hoarded Julia in a way very early on and you know when you have a child you go through this natural separation you know after when two and they start potty training and they start learning language and they become their own person and aware that they're their own self. Julia and I have never separated. So it's almost like I have a newborn for 30 years, and that bond just gets stronger and stronger every single day. So it's not easy for me to let others in to help her. She's still my baby that I want to hold all the time. Um, we've we've just never we've just never separated. You know, she has a wonderful caregiver that comes and helps us, and it's beautiful to see their friendship. But it's still. I'm still in charge, I'm still the, the mom, I'm still in charge. But as far as going through the process, you know, you have to go through, well, you don't have to do anything, but what really helped me, like I said, was realizing that this is her path and it's not something bad that happened to me. Although it was very hard at first, because it's not what you expect in life, right? You think you're gonna have this idyllic life with a, a new little daughter and you're told, we don't know if any of that's gonna happen. We don't even know how long she's gonna live or how long she's gonna be on the planet to be with you. So it's a struggle to shift gears. I would question doctors. I would ask for second opinions. I never turned over her responsibility to a medical professional. I took their advice and I, I listened to them and I used critical reasoning. I am not a neurologist, but I, didn't t I had a bad feeling about the first neurologist, and so I asked for a second opinion and found out she was misdiagnosed. There's no way at 24 I would have known that. All I knew was I didn't feel like she was getting the care she deserved. That's Marty talking to our producer, Scott Acord, about her care for her daughter, Julia. If you want to hear more of Marty and Julia's story, visit our website, hearmenowpodcast.org. What do you hear in Marty's story? One of the things I hear is just um, the sound of the next stone, because I've I've worked with a lot of parents who are very near the end of their life and come to the sudden realization that their child who is dependent upon them 
is now going to need something else and because they're not going to be able to be there. And so I guess that's one of the things I heard and that's a that's a whole different discussion, but a, a very important one to have because it's it's more and more common. One thing I, I hear is a a call to healthcare professionals to be listeners to the to the people who are with patients who can't speak for themselves. And I I I suspect in many ways um, healthcare in general would be better if we took more time to listen uh, to the families uh, who who are strong, loving advocates of, of those uh, who are vulnerable, um, like her daughter. I hear also a um, a real concern, um, and maybe it's not explicit, but maybe implicit, uh, a real concern about bias that healthcare providers might have when they are perhaps with good intentions trying to care for somebody who's uh, disabled. And how do we see the person who is there, not as a diagnosis, not as a medical problem, but as a person first and foremost, and to to see who they are and not necessarily to seek to fix, but to accommodate and to help that person thrive uh, in the best way possible. I heard a lot of love. Yeah. I heard an awful lot of love. All of you have pointed to the issue that financial resources are important um, in choosing how you're going to care for someone. Um, Nick, I'm going to put you on the spot, but only because of what your business card says. Um, what do you think of the ethics of the quality of care being dependent on how much money a family has and what their means are? Well, it's uh, in short, it's an injustice. Um, you know, I, I think uh, we have to we have a long, hard look uh, ahead of ourselves in trying to structure a society that provides a basic level of care across the entire lifespan. And when you look at that, uh, those social structures, uh, the reimbursement system, the facilities that are available, the kind of respite care available to family, and, and you um, layer on top of that a uh, a very pragmatic culture, a very youth-centric culture, I think you are, um, it's going to be an uphill battle in many respects to realign the social structures so that these injustices don't continue and don't perpetuate. But, uh, you know, there's a, there's a strong moral argument to say that uh, basic health care is a human right and to to rely on those who are uh, not trained or who, for their own reasons, aren't able to uh, effectively and safely care for those in need, um, that is that's a workaround that's unsustainable and untenable. You know, when I think about um, aging in the mental health population, and I look at. Um, the advance of psychotropic medications has created a, a system where people with significant 
severe and persistent mental illness are living much, much, much longer. And the lack of any type of accommodation for that, um, as we look across the service array, just just in particular to that population, it is stunning to me. Um, COVID exposed that that system is fragile at best. And I think we put so much pieces of effort in our health system into the beginning of life and the early stages of life that we don't do those types of things in the end of life when we're going out in much the same way, way we came in, dependent on others, um, needing to have those basic needs and, and the right of human dignity. It is a social justice issue. It is something that we need to be thinking about as we're carving benefits. Early in my career, I had the opportunity to work in Bend, Oregon for an organization that very much was attuned with the idea of when you leave this life, it is not in a hospital bed surrounded by tubes. It is in the loving care of people who care for you and there's heart music and there's laughter and there's celebration and it's a different way to die. And that place was heralded as one of the, you know, how did you do that? How did you make this one of the lowest Medicare cost places in the country and one of the best places to die? And I think there's a lot to learn from those lessons that life is not the last five days you spend with the tubes in the ICU. It really is how we honor the dignity of the end of life. Maureen, you get the last word. Well, I would like to call us to a paradigm shift. I really think we need to take a look at where we spend our resources. And they really very much go to acute care. And at some point, it is diminishing in its returns. And I think we have grave needs in the chronic care space because that's what most of us who survive to old age have is a number of different chronic conditions. And this would apply to the general population, people with serious and persistent mental illness, people with developmental delays, people who develop TBIs, etc. cetera. Um, not to mention, and not to forget, those people who then develop dementia. So I, I really think it's the time is now for a paradigm shift in how we provide healthcare. Well, all three of you have identified a social justice issue here. And I think Providence is uniquely placed in the American healthcare landscape to take a leadership role in moving a paradigm shift into the conversation, um, how healthcare works in America. And I think Providence is lucky to have the likes of the three of you in positions of leadership. Thank you all for taking the time to talk about this with us today. Thank you. Thanks, John. Bye-bye. Thanks, John. Dr. Nick Cockler is the Vice President for System Ethics Services in the Theology and Ethics Department at Providence St. Joseph Health. Dr. Maureen Nash is a geriatric psychiatrist and the medical director of Providence Elder Place in Portland, Oregon. And Dr. Robin Henderson is the chief executive of Behavioral Health for Providence, Oregon. 
Our thanks to Marty and Linda, who spoke with our producer, Scott Acord, about their role as a family caregiver. There's so much more to both of their stories, which you can hear on our website at hearmenowpodcast.org. Thanks, too, to Scott Simon of NPR News. The Hear Me Now podcast is a production of the Providence Institute for Human Caring. The program is produced by Scott Acord and Melody Fawcett. We have research help from medical librarians Amanda Schwartz, Seema Bakta, Carrie Grinstead, and Heather Martin. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. The executive producer is Michael Drummond. Subscribe if you haven't already and be sure to connect with us on Twitter, where we're human underscore caring. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Sean Collins. As always, thanks for listening. Be well. Thank you.